This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to The Road to Find Out, a University of Sydney podcast run by students for students, where we chat to some of the most wonderful academics in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. My name's Carla Field, and I'm hosting today's episode, where we chat to Dr. Peter Chen, a fantastic political scientist. After chatting about his journey as a university student to professor, we are going to be talking about politics and his research paper, New Media and Youth Political Engagement, as well as hearing about Peter's many recent interests, including street libraries. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, so this is The Road to Find Out and we are here today to find out. And we'd love to know if you could please describe yourself for us. Hi, my name is Dr Peter Chen and I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. And I'm a political scientist slash public policy person who uh, has studied a range of things throughout my career, but I'm generally regarded as an Australianist. That means I study Australian uh, politics and policy. I also do work on new media and uh, politics, as well as issues around animal welfare policy making. Um, but I can be found doing lots and lots of little other things because I have some eclectic interests. I wanted to ask first off the bat, um, how did you make your way to becoming an academic? We'd love to hear some of your journey. Yeah, thanks. So um, like a lot of academics, actually, I probably uh, didn't expect to become one. Uh, so I come from a relatively uh, working class kind of background. Originally, none of my parents went to university. And uh, I didn't go to university on leaving high school. Um, I uh, was running a series of fast food restaurants in Brisbane and uh, Queensland on the Gold Coast um, because uh, that's what I was doing. And so after a while, I found that slightly less interesting than uh, it might have seemed when I was 17 years old. And so I decided to go to university to get a business degree because I was doing businessy stuff and I thought probably if I wanted to do more interesting businessy stuff I should get a degree in that so I went to Griffith University to um, get a, a Bachelor of Commerce and Administration degree and because I probably didn't have what's sometimes called the cultural capital to navigate this uh, weird institution called university I didn't manage to fill out the forms right and instead of doing a double major in business I did one major in business and my second major was in public administration. And um, within about a year, I discovered that I found my business degree not very interesting. I consider it now mostly a theoretical heuristics, um, which has carried me very limited distance in terms of what I learned. Um, but I found what I was learning in public administration, which was about public policy and government and politics and administration of the public sector and stuff like that, much more interesting. And, and that was because I think partly I had a very interesting group of uh, academic mentors there at Griffith University. It was a relatively small department. But also it was an interesting time politically. So uh, it was the end of um, the National Party government in Queensland, the end of the Bjorki Peterson era. Um, which was a, a long-standing conservative government um, associated with um, uh, police corruption and other things like that. And the Labor government had um, come to office for the first time in an extremely long period of time. And there was a lot of policy reform and policy change going on. And so it was just a kind of interesting time to be involved in politics, I think. Mm. Fantastic. Um, and you also mentioned to us previously this idea of there's kind of two types of academics. Can you talk us through what that means? Oh, right. So uh, probably when I talk about the, the things that I do in terms of uh, what I work on. So, you know, if I talk to people, they say, oh, you know, what projects are you working on at the moment? And I'll say, well, you know, I'm working on this project on digital media regulation and another one on broiler hen welfare. I've got a project going about journalism employment and then I'm writing this, uh, you know, series of reports on street libraries in, a, in Sydney. And people are like, whoa, you know, like that's a lot of different things. And I guess probably what I'd say is 
I am a kind of eclectic person. And there's two sorts of academics, really. There's the kind of people like me who get distracted by shiny things and they study (laughs) them because they're kind of interesting at the time. And then Mm. there are people who are like laser focused on one topic and they're just monsters. They know everything about it. And probably those people are really good in the first part of um, the hard quiz uh, show Mm. when they're (laughs) talking about their special topic. I would be lousy about that. I have no topic that I could dominate um, in terms of what I know. But I know a lot of stuff about a lot of different things. And so I'm pretty good at parties because I can have five minutes of discussion on almost every topic excluding sport. Um, But beyond five minutes, um, my uh, knowledge breaks down pretty quickly. (laughs) That's fantastic. So you're a jack of all trades in many ways. Yeah, a little bit. And I kind of like that. And I guess probably as a teacher, I have quite an eclectic teaching um, portfolio too. And so there's a kind of like you know, need to be a bit of an instant expert a little bit. Mm, yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, I was also really interested by how you were saying you're attracted to kind of like shiny objects, so different topics all the time and things like that. So I like hearing about your approach to research. Research, sorry. So could you walk us through the process of choosing a topic or concept to explore? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. And, and it's not actually always that easy to choose a topic that's worthy of investigation, um, so sometimes I think there are things that, um, that just jump out at you, right? And you kind of have this kind of question where you go, oh, what's the literature on that? And then you have a look and you, you discover that there isn't a big literature on it or something like yeah. that. And so a few years ago, I wrote a paper on hate speech during the same-sex marriage plebiscite. And I was a little surprised, actually, that no one really wrote about that topic very much. People have written about the same-sex marriage plebiscite. It's a big political event. It's kind of interesting. But at the time, um, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, said, with regards to concerns, particularly amongst the gay and lesbian community, that the plebiscite would be an unfortunate opportunity for uh, people uh, motivated by hate to um, to express hate to them. Mm. Um And the Prime Minister sort of said, you know, that Australians are are better than that, that we can actually talk about issues in public and uh, and we can uh, reason things out. And so I was like, okay, is that really true, actually? Because that's a a claim that's made. And and so that led to, like, a small research project where I pulled down, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of uh, comments out of um, Facebook groups during the website. And asked myself, what sort of discussion, you know, are people actually having around this issue? Is it all hate speech or are people talking about the pros and cons of the policy issues and things like that? And that's just one of those things where you see something in the world and you say, is there anything on it? If there's not anything written on it, why don't you write something on it? And a few of my projects recently, like the Street Library's work or my paper on vegans and their tattoos, for example, are these little things where... There's a kind of knowledge gap and I just jump into. Whereas other things, I guess, where there might be longer standing projects are more likely to be things where there's a considerable body of work to be done. And so if we think about animal welfare issues, animals are sentient beings. Um, We use billions of them in Australia for our own purposes as food, as clothing, as entertainment in science and research. And yet their well-being is generally not considered very much at all by most people in our community. Uh, and yet, why is that the case? And why is the policy uh, that surrounds the way in which we treat them the way it is? And so that clearly is a sort of study that has slightly more gravitas than a kind of vegan tattoo kind of uh, research. And so it talks to something that you would run over, you know, years and years and years, if not decades and decades of study. Mm, fantastic. That sounds, I love that you've mentioned so many different parts of your work, which is really uh, inspiring to hear. Uh, I also wanted to ask if I could get personal for a moment. Um, one of the most empowering things we've discovered through this podcast is talking to academics, but also understanding some of the challenges that they've overcome in their studies as well. So kind of going back to when you're an undergrad student to now you've done a PhD and you're now a lecturer for many years, 13 years at UCID, is that right? I've been, yep, UCID for 13 years. 
Fantastic. So obviously, I think you've taught so many different cohorts of young people going through and great young professionals. But we want to hear what were some of the things that you faced or that you've overcome that um, people may not know about, like an academic's journey or um, even just you as a person? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that is a, that's a reasonable question <laughs> to ask. Um, and, and in a way, I guess I kind of hold a public position, right, where people should ask, like, why do you hold the role that you have and the responsibility and authority that that gives to some degree, right? And so probably, I guess, you know, I don't really talk about this actually generally, but um, uh, I probably wasn't thinking about studying because, you know, I did not enjoy school as a young person. Um, I had a significant learning disability that um, restricted my capacity and, um, and still actually, you know, is something that I have to deal with, even though, you know, I'm still in the um, higher education sector. It's kind of a perverse thing to do, really, in many ways. Um, and I guess um, it is easy to, I think, easier for people who have family members who are, you know, who get honours degrees or go on to high degree research or who are academics. I didn't know anyone like that really mm. um, growing up. That's just not the sort of um, uh, environment in which I grew up. And that's not to say that my, um, my family was kind of not educated people. Um, uh, but, um, uh, you know, and particularly my mother uh, was, you know, kind of voracious reader, incredibly intelligent uh, woman, actually. And she was a person who was constrained by her circumstances. And so her ability to talk about what a university experience might be like was limited by the fact that she, you know, um, was not able to do that as a young person in her life sort of thing. Um, so I think, I think those things about being able to see yourself um, yeah. in the university yeah. experience is an important way of visualising it as something that you can do. But once you actually get into university, and, and I guess the, the difference now is that between when I went to university in the 1990s and now, it's so many more people go to university as a percentage of the population, right? So it is increasingly an experience that people get to enjoy. And I guess then the, the question is, once you get into that institution or setting, um, are you encouraged to pursue the full range of opportunities that might exist and a good example is you know going on to do maybe research work and things like that and and once upon a time that kind of um, research activity was really limited only to the honours year at the undergraduate level and that was a very small cohort of students who were carefully selected by academics um, to be people who academics thought would become academics like them and I'm glad that that has kind of broken down, actually, and that more people do honours um, study um, who have no intention of becoming academics but actually want to engage in research. And I also do like the way in which there is a diversification of learning where we're seeing more team and project-based um, instruction um, where people are working on solving actual problems. And I, I would like to see... Um, most of the kind of, uh, you know, essay writing stripped right back, actually, um, because I think the, um, the classical essay has, has utility, but that, uh, particularly in the Faculty of Arts, that it is the primary way that most people engage with their material, I think, um, is, is quite unhelpful, actually. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I think we need to, yeah, we need to build more portfolios and do more reports and other other things. Yeah. Oh, great. I really, really appreciate everything you've said, especially about how university is very much a place of privilege. And it is very exciting to hear that it's opening up to more, just more of the general population. Like it's really exciting to hear um, that there's steps forward um, because we've heard echoed through a few academics, actually, that um, there is a big self-awareness that it could be a place of privilege and even just like the the status of academics and things like that. So really appreciate you, your thoughts on that. Um, oh, yeah, and, and, and the University of Sydney too, like, you know, in particular, right? Mm. And I've worked, I've worked at University of Sydney, I've worked at University of Melbourne, but I've also worked at other universities like Monash and, and places like that. And w what I'd say is the University of Sydney 
is a massively privileged um, cohort of people. And that's not mm. necessarily the fault of the institution per se. The university has at times put incredible effort into diversifying its student base. But it is hard because students yeah. often want to go and study where their peers go and study. And if you are someone yeah. who, you know, it's a classic example, lives, you know, uh, in the western suburbs, your friends, if they're going to university, they might want to go to a local university that's close to where they live. And so you want to go to a local university, be with your friends and peers. But, um, but I think we do definitely need to, to work at that. I think the thing I like about the university system in Australia is that the difference between the quote-unquote elite universities and the less elite universities is nowhere near as broad as in countries like the United States. Mm, and my great point. fear actually is that because um, the university sector in Australia is being massively run down by successive governments in terms of its funding mm. and the quality of instruction is declining, that a city like Sydney will generate a private university that will then vacuum out um, a huge amount of privilege and money to create a real American elite-style institution and that that will then cement at the higher education level the sort of educational disparity we see has been cemented at the secondary level yeah, with independent point. schools. Mm. That's very a lot of food for thought there. That's yeah, because <laughs> seriously, it's it's really interesting to think about and a bit scary as well. Um, oh yeah, I'm an old man, so um, complaining about uh, you know clouds and things like that is kind of a function <laughs> of um, people of my age at this point. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I wanted to pivot quickly too. You told a really great story um, when we spoke before. Um, so you have so much experience in your research interviewing people from all walks of life. So do you have any particularly memorable interviews um, of experiences that like, stick out to you? Because I know you have to interview a lot for your research. Yeah, I mean, interviewing has been a method that I've used quite a fair bit. Um, and I, I actually am a big advocate for learning interviewing skills um, at university because I think it's not just a research tool. I, I, I had a job once where I was working for the Victorian Police Force Wow. Um, doing research and policy stuff and I needed to be up to speed and I I actually really I didn't study any criminology before that you know it was just a job I needed to um to pay the rent and things like that and I wasn't a 30-year veteran of the Victorian police force and so I needed to extract from 30-year veterans of the police information to inform the sorts of research and policy writing work I was doing and at that time, the kind of experience that I'd gathered doing interviewing, I found paid off in a big way. So I'm a big advocate for learning those sorts of skills at universities. And I'd like universities to do a lot more of that skilling, particularly in classical, quote unquote, classical arts um, contexts. But um, I do remember um, one of my earliest interviews is probably one of my most memorable um, I was doing my honours thesis on um, residential tenancy law reform. Um, obviously a very exciting topic, you can imagine. <laughs> um, but, um, but an important one, obviously, people in Sydney know how um, important residential tenancy law is and um, the rental market in general. Um, so I was researching important law reform that had gone on and I was um, interviewing a minister who'd been involved in this process of um, introducing a, a, a new uh, legal regime. And so I sat in his office and what I discovered was um, when I sat down to interview him, he had this giant desk and he was sitting behind the desk in this big chair. And I sat down and I was like a foot, foot and a half lower than him. He had in his office this tiny chair for visitors to sit in. So they'd always be <laughs> looking up at him. And he had all these windows in his office behind him where the sun would stream through behind him. And so he was kind of haloed in the sun and I'm sort of sitting there crouched down on this chair and I'm like <laughs> wow this is this complete power move right that this mm. guy is pulling and he pulls it obviously on everyone so any constituent any public servant any colleague who comes in gets this power move and <laughs> I, at the time I thought you know this is a bit unnecessary I'm just a you know, undergraduate <laughs> student right but it said a lot, I think, about the way in which this guy saw the world, saw how to engage in politics and things like that. And so often what I find in interviews is sometimes what's said is less significant than the way it is said. Um, and, and that's why 
you know, Zoom has been great for facilitating interviews, particularly international ones, but it does lose that experiential capacity to see people in their environment, how they conduct themselves and things of that nature. Absolutely. Um, and I guess I kind of have one final question for our kind of personal section and then we'll move more on to your academic work. Um, so I guess my question is, you've obviously spent, obviously spent a lot of time at university and, and have studied a lot yourself. Do you have any major mentors or great academics that you really looked up to or wanted to emulate their, their style or inspired by? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I guess probably what I'd say is I was a very lucky person. So I studied in my uh, policy and politics major at Griffith University, um, and it was a very small department. And to be honest, it was prior to the the um, the Van Stone era austerity measures. And so when I studied at university, I had a lot of personal interactions with my academics. I had tutorials with maybe 10 to 13 people in them. Um, I received copious amounts of feedback. All of that has been stripped out of the higher education sector over the last um, 20 years. And that is an insult to um, students, um, to be honest. Um, but because of that, I did get, you know, uh, to work with people like John Wanner or Liz Van Acker, and they really, um, they really influenced me in that they were extremely open and friendly academics who demystified academia, right? And I only had a few kind of God professors that I had to deal with at Griffith. And maybe that was because it was a, a kind of like a Dawkins University, as they kind of call them, a second tier university. But that was very inspiring for me. Um, and I wouldn't have gone on to further study without that, I think, because I, I really went to university to get a bachelor's degree and then get back into the workforce and what I ended up doing was crab-wise working through my bachelor's degree into public admin, my honours degree into public policy, my PhD into um, political science. And I don't think without some of those important figures, Marion Sims for my PhD, who unfortunately recently passed away, they were very influential people on me. But also can I say that in my, I think until about five years ago, I probably had spent as much time in the private sector or the public sector as I have in the academic sector. Um, so I'm not necessarily a pure academic. And, and I also would say that many of the people that I worked with uh, in my professional life have also demonstrated great um, management techniques or strategies that I have found quite useful as well. Um, so it's not just like being inspired by academics, I think. I think everyone can inspire you. And I'm a big advocate for reflexive practice, this notion that, that people who change the world are people who think deeply about the work that they do. And those are people who don't have jobs but have careers. Mm. And to be honest, the reflective practice, practitioners I've met have actually often been not in the university sector but outside of it. One of your papers... Um, which is new media and youth political engagement. Um, this really um, kind of spiked my interest because I consider myself someone pretty politically engaged. Um, and I wanted to ask, so you've had all this experience um, of being an academic at the University of Sydney and you co-wrote this paper. And um, as a uni student, I feel like we often get labelled with rhetoric such as, particularly seen in America, like snowflake or completely disengaged. There's like two kind of polar sides. Um, do you think that younger people today are actively engaged in politics? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I co-wrote this with my co-author, Melissa Ivanovich. Um, and um, and I, I think probably what I'd say is... Uh, your generation is a far more politically engaged generation than my generation was. Like that, that is like clearly true. It's clearly empirically true. Uh, and I just think about my generation. Um, I'm a Gen Xer. Um, fortunately, the boomers are there to soak up all the hate. Like Gen Xers can kind of sail beneath that. But um, Gen Xers are also just terrible people in general, I think. Uh, so, you know, we were like um, complaining loudly about apartheid, right, while completely ignoring the treatment of Indigenous people within our, our country. So, you know, we've got, we've got no, nothing to stand on. And I think one of the things that is uh, a, um, a pernicious but uh, seems to be a kind of universal experience is that the youngest generation is always blamed for being um, disengaged and non-political. And we can think about these kind of speeches given by Roman senators 
um, back, you know, uh, in the you know in the in the day where they can bemoan, you know, the young generation. All they want to do is, you know, go to the Colosseum and watch the fights and you know hang out with their whores and stuff like that and drink wine. And none of them are engaged in the important work of building up the glory of Rome, right? So. It's a kind of phenomenon that basically I think is um, is myths reads the exclusion of young people from the political system for their lack of engagement or interest with it. And then yeah. I think we have um, some figures who I uh, dislike intensely who will then on top of that say that whenever young people attempt through whatever mechanisms they can use to express their political agency say that that is inappropriate or wrong. And we can think about the current Prime Minister of Australia in relation to the climate um, strikes, uh, making expressions like um, that our schools should not be parliaments. And I guess maybe, you know, um, I'm an old-fashioned kind of character, but I think our schools should be exactly parliaments. I think our schools should be places where the people who are part of those institutions are actively engaged in shaping how they operate and they run rather than being effectively prisons that are run top down, you know, that are, you know, essentially, you know, consultative authoritarian regimes or something like that. And so that obviously is the sort of language that I see as deliberately attempting to disengage people from the political process. And that clearly makes managing populations easier. But I don't think in a democracy, it's something that we should regard as a noble um, public sentiment to make. So young people, sorry, a long answer, but um, I guess I'm an academic and that um, comes with the territory a little bit. But <laughs> young people are, I think, very engaged in politics. Sometimes they're engaged in politics in ways that other generations have difficulty recognising it, it politically, right? And I think, you know, the, the attention to some of the kind of cultural aspects um, and inclusion aspects that young people are often accused of being, you know, quote-unquote, snowflakes, is really a politics of recognition, right? It's a politics of recognition and inclusion. Yeah, and, and, and I just think other generations sometimes fail to understand what that politics means. Um, but, um, but your generation particularly, and can I say, unfortunately out of necessity to some extent, is a very politically engaged generation, but it fills me actually with great hope. Oh, wonderful to hear. Um, yeah, in this same paper, there's. I'm just going to quote it for a moment. It says, The internet is not a mesh where each node has equal power relative to its peers, but a powerscape which virtually mirrors the hierarchical nature of power in the physical space where certain agendas, people, and even locations are prioritised. So could you please unpack a little bit what this means and what it might look like? So I really liked the idea of it's mirroring the hierarchical nature of power in the physical space. So this is talking about the internet here. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a very elegantly put sentence and it clearly must have been written by my co-author. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess probably, I mean, and I, I don't know if this is something that I need to tell your generation as much as maybe my generation a little bit, but certainly if we think about um, discussions around the rise of new media in the 1990s and into the noughties, there was this kind of cyber utopianism, right? A kind of uh, a technological deterministic view that said through technology, actually, there's this great equalizing going on. You know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Everyone can participate <laughs> equally. It's a complete meritocracy. And, you know, the future is far more democratic. And this was a huge narrative that was very big. Um, you know, in the first decade. And governments, you know, adopted this narrative, but also the people who are now the new media power elite adopted this narrative, right? Um, you know, the, the great kind of equalising capacity of the internet. But as we found out, that's not true, right? So, you know, for every um, capacity for a, a person to have a startup and to be liberated from, you know, kind of the institutional setting of, of a corporate job or something like that, there's, you know, a Google, you know, an Apple... Uh, a Facebook, you know, these massive monopoly power structures that, of course, you know, want to continue their monopoly power and influence and are increasingly bridging that power into influence in other areas. And so um, one of the things I think that, um, that we often see when talking about young people's participation is a focus on young people's participation in the virtual world, right? And, and that's partly because one... You're a generation that's completely brought up in this 
you know, highly technologically mediated environment. You're completely natural to it. So I myself, you know, I wrote my first university essays longhand. I did not type them, let alone engage on the internet. The internet was a new technology in the final days of my university experience that was only used by a few people. It wasn't certainly something you had at home, let alone on a phone or anything like that. So you guys, I mean, are naturally engaged in the internet space. And so sometimes there's this kind of um, uh, projection that's put out there that this is providing you with a great equalizing power. And so we can point to you know, the climate protests and stuff like that. Oh, look at how, you know, in a diverse and, and distributed way, young people can organise politically and they can shake the foundations of power. But I think what we need to recognise is that, that power does strike back and it colonises, you know, new spaces. And every new technology is often picked up by insurgent groups, um, you know, uh, in a, you know, people who are who are outside of the mainstream power structure, you know, so, and, and new media is often part of that. But then those new technologies are then recolonized by the powerful because they can use their institutional position, their legal position, their financial position to do that. And certainly the internet, I think, has been completely recolonized by the, the power elite. And so if we rely on the internet to provide us with a voice for people, then what we need to do is say well, this is not a level playing field. How can we make it so? And, and I think the, um, the other big story about the internet's kind of early uh, golden era was the same people who were saying that this is a completely open space for a meritocracy to emerge. They were also saying that this space needs no regulation or state intervention because that would undermine the goose that lays the golden egg. And I think we can now say the goose is not necessarily laying the golden egg because we can see how depending on where you sit on the social gradient, the internet is um, often being used to, you know, turn you into a de-skilled labourer in many ways. And a lot of the work that we're seeing, you know, uh, the work environment we're seeing emerging is one where there are people at the very top, right, of the spectrum who are masters of the universe and they are attempting to some extent to de-skill everyone else and that they will do their work through apps that completely tailorize and, and fordize the work that they do. And so there's going to be this complete hollowing out of both the middle, but also a capacity for pro- progression within mm. people's employment lives. Mm. That's a really interesting point about how the internet can be used as a tool in a very negative way to kind of control people's work and I think it's really interesting, even in the lockdowns, people feeling this sense of they can never turn work off. Like emails are always there. Your phone's always around you, things like that. So very interesting point. Um, no, I think that's, that's a really good point. And, and we have seen some places like France introducing laws that have made it illegal for bosses to email their workers outside of their work hours. Right? Mm, and, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and I think um, unless some of these cues are actually put in place then work will expand to fill every available minute of the day um and you know and those things that that we fought for will be lost you know the great 888 eight hours of sleep eight hours of rest eight hours of work right um uh, for most people that's a historical point not a reality yeah that's a really good point um and quite sad as well to think about but Um, I also wanted to mention that in that same paper, you explore the rise of surveillance capitalism. So can you please define what this means to us? I feel like it's very relevant to what we're speaking about right now. Yeah, right. Okay. So Zuboff writes a book called Surveillance Capitalism that starts this kind of discussion. And basically, um, the idea of surveillance capitalism is that the kind of primary mode of those capitalist organisations that are most successful and influential in our economies are increasingly successful because of their capacity to harvest data and information from the environment, but particularly their user base, right? And to use that information to provide goods and services, um, but also ensure that they maintain their strong position. And the classic example is obviously Facebook, right? So Facebook is this free service that makes money off the back of the people who utilize it, you and me, the users, and they monetize that data that they collect by placing advertisements or things like that in front of us. Now, this is not necessarily a new concept, right? Ever since um, newspapers and media organizations started using advertisements 
to fund their, the way in which they produce their product, there's been the conversion of their readers, their consumers from being the consumer of the product to being the, the actual product itself. So if you think about it, um, at the you know end of the millennium, there was a set of free newspapers you could get in Australia called the MX newspapers, and they were completely free and they were distributed on like trains and things like that. And they were free because advertisers paid for the advertisement. And so the people who read those newspapers were not the consumers of the newspapers. They were the product that the newspaper sold to the advertiser, right? Um, and that's why it was free. So this idea has been around for a while, but certainly in this era where we can obviously um, turn people into data much more readily and easily or automatically in a way, there is a much um, greater capacity for this business model of um, utilising people's data. And the advantages of that, obviously, is that, you know, if you can automatically capture people's preference data, then you can service them better and deliver them a better product, right? But to some extent, and I guess the concern that I had um, about surveillance capitalism in this paper was the message that it sends about human agency, particularly for the political world. And so, I mean, I don't know if I have a huge amount of things to say about the preference engines that drive uh, Amazon's recommendation engine that much, but I certainly have concerns about when those preference engines are applied to public sector data to deliver services to members of the community because I think it can be toxically disempowering to people's agency. And you know that when you don't have agency, and I think everyone having lived through lockdown now has a sense of a loss of agency, you know that undermines your sense of efficacy, that you can achieve things in the world, mm. and that totally is demobilising, and that reduces people from being active agents in their society to being passive, and passive people are, you know, they do not have full lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, great points. Um Thank you for defining that. That was really helpful to hear. Uh, and I remember even with Facebook years ago, the Cambridge Analytica like scandal coming out and that was so wild to read about and the interference in elections and things like that. So I guess another question I have is what's the kind of best piece of advice that you would like to share with students and listeners um, from your, either your lived experience or your just your career in general? Um, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, well, I mean, I shouldn't give career advice because I'm a... Uh, uh, 49-year-old man who's still at university. So I think, you know, you, you've got to take um, you got to take a little bit of scepticism about people who've never deinstitutionalized themselves. Mm. Um, and although I do live in the world and do manage to, like, main, you know, fill my car with petrol and stuff like that, um, I think getting advice from people with real jobs is, is quite a useful thing to have. But probably um, if I was to give advice in the kind of narrow way that I have, um, my life experience, I'd probably say in terms of university advice, I think studying broadly is really good advice. Mm. I, I think you don't know what you don't know. And I, I am a fan actually of the classic arts education that allows people to do a bit of politics, a bit of history, a bit of, you know, 14th century, homoerotic renaissance, literature, a bit of this and a bit of that to not just get an opportunity to to learn about things you might not have been able to learn about at school, right, because the, the canvas is broader, but also to see those connections, right, across things. Um, and, um, and certainly, I guess, I think being well-rounded is quite useful, but also seeing how similar things might play out in different areas, I think, is actually quite useful. And then I guess probably professionally, one of the advice I'd give probably from my, my work in... Um, when I've worked outside of the university sector is it's funny how long it took me and I don't know about other people to ask for things right mm. and it wasn't until I moved to a new city years ago and I needed a job that I for the first time just asked someone hey I need a job do you know anyone who needs someone like me and I got a job that way and ah. like it was like such an eye-opening um, thing for me. I just sort of assumed that you like would just go and look in the newspaper and all the jobs in the newspaper were the jobs that existed and stuff like that. And I guess one of the things is that people don't know you and what you're thinking as well as you sometimes think they do. And so sometimes you just need to say, I need more challenging activities. This is not satisfying me. 
And I think some people who change jobs too frequently need to actually say, oh, I, I just need more challenging work in this, in this job. What can you do for me and stuff like that? So I think just asking, actually. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's a really good point of just, yeah, actually stand up for yourself and be like, oh, I can, can I don't feel afraid to actually say what you need. It's a really good point. Um, and I yeah. really loved what you said about um, the connections between different areas of study. My degree is, is interdisciplinary. So I have a business major and an arts major, and it's been so fascinating, the overlap uh, very different perspectives on things. So I do industrial relations and I, what you were saying earlier about Uber and things like that, we've done a lot of work on the <laughs> platform economy and gig economy. It's very exploitative. So it's just super interesting seeing like international relations intersect with something like domestic work and how does work in the world it shapes everything. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I, think, I think probably some of these artificial boundaries have been unhelpful. So, you know, like, I mean... I often talk to my students who are, who are maybe pure kind of pop political science students, right? And they're talking about, oh, I'm about to leave university and I'm going to go and, you know, obviously just get a job in the public sector. I'm like, why? You should get a job in like a heavily regulated industry segment, right? And the, the days when, you know, like you just studied businessy things in business and you studied, you know, government things in government and they were unrelated. Well, most of what government does is through outsourcing and contracting. If you don't understand business, you cannot be a very effective public servant because you don't understand one of the primary interlocking stakeholder groups that you're going to deal with. And similarly so, if you're in business, I mean, one, what business doesn't face regulation, but two, you know, there are very few sectors that do not provide services to the public sector, the single largest employer and the single largest part of the GDP of Australia. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, I also wanted to ask probably as a, I've absolutely loved all of your insights. Thank you so much for all of this. Do you have a, any sort of piece of art, doesn't have to be political, even though that is your kind of area of expertise, but any piece of art or literature or text that you read at university that really spoke to you? Was there any pieces um, that just really, either it could even be like a, a transform, transformative moment. Did you have any moments like that where like a penny dropped? I don't know. It's a bit embarrassing. I mean, I think, uh, I think at university I was really into Rage Against the Machine, actually, but I don't know if that was a transformative uh, moment, actually, in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, it's not that, uh, not that good music. No, I probably culturally, you know, I'm... Um, I'm possibly closer to my social roots than most of my colleagues, if you know what I mean. So um, I, I, I have appreciated, I guess, to some extent more recently, a greater representation of working class people on the screen, actually. And if you think about like Mayor of Newtown and stuff like that, um, and there are similar things coming out of the UK... I think they are actually quite inspiring and interesting. Whereas if we think about going back a little while when I was closer to my studies, you know, Kath and Kim and stuff like that, I found that actually extremely patronising and condescending, um, these kind of university-educated comedians basically taking the piss out of working-class people. So I think there's actually... Um, I think... You guys are definitely living in the golden age of television, particularly, I think is absolutely the case. Um, and, um, and I think that's good. And, and, um, and I think um, the greater diversity of, of uh, people making programming, you know, racially, you know, in terms of gender and sexuality, but also in terms of class, I think is, is, is really actually extremely positive. Um, and while there are like, you know, classic pieces, you know, back from my when I was young and things like that, they were rarer, I think, than they are now. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. I really appreciate that. And I, I agree, it is, it's so important to see and the power of, they've done studies, I'm pretty sure, and just how even little kids, how they respond to seeing people like them on screen or seeing even in like gender, like little girls seeing female superheroes is a massive deal. Like, um, so it, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a like Chinese Australian guy. I grew up in, in Queensland in the kind of like 1970s and 1980s. When I was a young person, there were five Chens in the phone book. They were all my family. Like that was, wow. in, that was in a capital city of Australia. 
Oh my word. So things have changed a lot. Like, you know, and and you know, people talk about the far right and and things like, you know, that, but I think we can be a bit more confident actually. They are the last gasp a bit of a, a sort of politics that cannot continue to survive in a country like Australia anymore because Australia has changed actually. Yeah. And uh, we should be wary about them, but we should also see them for what they are, which is sad, reactionary, last gasp. And, um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm oddly a very optimistic person, finally. That's good to hear. That, that gives me hope. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. You've mentioned it before, but could you walk us a little bit through your recent research on street libraries or st- street librarians? So what does this mean? How did you come to it? I'm very interested to find out. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I, uh, I live in the uh, outer inner west of Sydney, and um, and so just in walking around the neighbourhood, I have spied over many years the rise of these street library phenomena, sort of thing. These little boxes that people see, brightly coloured, that um, have the take a book, share a book, leave a book kind of um, uh, thing on them. And I probably, you know, for a long time, I didn't really think too much about them. Um, but then I sort of kind of got into them, right? Like, you know, um, these kind of interesting phenomena. I like books. You know, I, I kind of like this kind of ethos of sharing. And yeah. then I didn't think about much about them for a long time. And then at some point I sort of said, I wonder if anyone's actually done any research on these things because there are actually a lot of these around, right? Mm. And, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, you start off, you start seeing them and then you see, oh, this is quite a common phenomena. Right, and so there's some significance to what's going on. So I had to kind of look at the literature, and there's very little literature around. And the literature that exists is mainly from North America. Wow. Where street libraries are often called uh, little free libraries. <laughs> and um, and so I, um, in sort of reading about it, there's a kind of number of claims that are made about these street libraries. Right, that they have an impact on literacy that they address problems about what's sometimes called book deserts or places where there, for a variety of reasons, might be limited access to books, either because people have limited resources in of themselves or there aren't sort of libraries or bookshops or things like that, um, that they are useful tools for community building and placemaking. And so when you hear those sort of claims, they're big claims, right? That this addresses a problem like literacy, that this engages in community building and social capital creation. And I'm like, as a social researcher, I'm like, oh, those are big claims. I want to I want to know, is that really true, right? If yeah. you can just build a little house and stick it on your fence, can you build social capital in your neighbourhood? So from that, what I did was I reached out to an organisation called Street Libraries Incorporated who have a bit of a big database of street libraries and then... With um, in kind of consultation with them, I built a research project around it, which um, includes a mixed method approach. So some focus grouping with street librarians, leading to a broad scale uh, survey questionnaire of street librarians, um, uh, um, uh, uh, geospatial analysis of street libraries and their locations using ABS and other data. Um, and uh, and uh, a remote visual inspection of street libraries. Wow. And so this kind of mixed method research design allows you to say a lot of things. So it allows you to do things like say, well, where are street libraries? Are they actually located in places that would most benefit for, through increased provision of books? It allows you to say, are street libraries actually examples of the gift or sharing economy like they claim to be? Are they these things that generate um, uh, new use for old books? Do they liberate? assets that are static within people's houses? Do they reduce the environmental impact of disposable books and things like that? Do street libraries lead to social capital increases among street librarians? So you can start asking these questions and what you might see is you might start with something that seems relatively trivial and certainly, you know, isn't the biggest issue facing Australia today and I wouldn't want people to think that's the only research project I work on. But then you can come back at the end and you can say okay, this is kind of interesting because I think that actually street libraries in Australia this year will liberate $11 million worth of static assets back into the economy, right? Wow. Yeah, and that, that's, like, that's like not a huge amount of money, don't get me wrong. That's about 1.2 houses in Sydney. <laughs> but actually that's, that's a lot of books, right? Um, and that's circulating a lot of kind of books. And that obviously has impacts in terms of 
um, taking things that are sitting around in people's houses as static assets and reusing them. And there's been a lot of claims about that the gift economy would do that. And a lot of those claims have not been borne out, to be honest. So if we think about car sharing, for example, the actual amount of car sharing that involves static vehicles that people aren't using is not true. Most car sharing involves new vehicles that are being used specifically for that purpose. If we think about um, Uber drivers and, and stuff like that, it, it's not people necessarily liberating free time, but people are actually doing that as a full-time job. So it's it's a replacement for existing parts of the economy. So, you know, we, we can get to bigger questions or a bit of an insight about that. And so we can say, well, actually, these things are more like the gift or the sharing economy than most enterprises that make big claims to be part of the sharing economy actually are. Oh, so it's more authentic than the what you were saying before. There's kind of these claims from big companies and things like that. It's like an actual true grassroots kind of form of it. Is that what you're saying? The street libraries. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying to say, and I think authentic, or, you know, like when we talk about things being authentic, that's always like, you know, a slightly loaded term, right? That being authentic is better. You know, the authentic politician is better than the professional politician. Like, yeah, maybe, but actually often when you think about like, you know, random Joes who become politicians and become influential, they're actually terrible at their job and professional <laughs> politicians can actually be quite good at running the, you know, major enterprise that is the government, you know, sort of thing. But um. But yeah, I mean, I think probably what it what it says is if your interest in the sharing economy is about um, liberating these static assets and having environmental benefits, then you'll probably have been very disappointed from what the sharing economy has actually turned out to be, which has really been, particularly for cars driving and delivery, actually not really a sharing economy, but driving down the pain conditions of people who would already do that work, right? Yeah. Your Uber driver is taking the job of a taxi driver and the taxi driver now earns less money, right? Now, we can have debates about, you know, some relative advantages and whether taxis were an overly regulated monopoly type of provision, stuff like that. But it certainly doesn't look anything like the claims that were originally made by the tech giants who are like, you know, you set up an Airbnb, you're just using some spare room in your house, no, the average Airbnb is not a spare room in a house. It's a commercial enterprise. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. We've absolutely loved having you. And just just the, the breadth and depth of the knowledge you have is fantastic and lived experience is invaluable to us, especially as Harry and I are both um, art students, like approaching Harry's a third year, I'm a second year. And I just, I feel so privileged being able to speak to you like this. So thank you so much for giving up your time um, today, Peter. It's been fantastic. No, thank um, you so yeah, much. So I really appreciate thank you again for the joining opportunity us. to talk with you.